This is the second in a little uh, mini-series on self-kindness as a spiritual practice. Um, we're going to be considering uh, self-kindness from an older tradition than the self-esteem um, version. Uh, the self-esteem movement started you know, roughly in the 1950s. It, uh, you knew it had really made it when it was mocked by um, Saturday Night Live. Remember Stuart Smalley, I think that was Al Franken. I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and gosh darn it, people like me sitting in front of the mirror. And that was kind of like the end of the crest of the self-esteem movement. Uh, and I want to look at um, self-kindness from an, a much older tradition than the self-esteem movement, nothing against self-esteem movement, um, um, but um, from the Hebrew scriptures, the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament, and particularly as, um, as the Hebrew Bible is interpreted by Jesus, who's like my favorite rabbi. Um, I don't know why this is popping into my mind, I'm just going to say it. Steve Gray is a member here and he led our little class on what is the Bible this this morning it was so fascinating and I learned that Steve Gray was the national champion in Bible quizzing in the junior and senior year of high school like he, he memorized like major portions of the Bible. Could we just give it up for Steve Gray, our national champion Bible? I had never knew about Bible quizzing. I didn't grow up evangelical, but it's like a thing. It's a team sport. People like it's competitive. There's local and regional and state and oh national. And oh my gosh, like I never met. A national champion in <laughs> Bible quizzing, but but seriously, it's super helpful for Steve. He says he just he's just going along his business, and he's in a situation, and a text from Scripture pops into his mind, and it's like always helpful and encouraging. And I'm like, dang, okay. Oh, I know why I mentioned that because we're studying the Bible today. Oh, okay. <laughs> so I knew there's a connection. So um, did you all get the uh, copy of? Leviticus chapter 19, um, it's on that, um, on that uh, as you came in, so raise your hand if you need a copy of that, we'll be kind of following along, we can get that to you. Um, so just a quick summary from part one in terms of the um, Jesus emphasis on this, you know, um, Many, many rabbis, including Jesus, answered a kind of standard question at that time, which was, which is the greatest commandment? Uh, with love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength, Jesus added mind to that list, which is from, I think, Deuteronomy. And then he added, um, and your neighbor as yourself, which was kind of like st standard rabbinic response to the question, which is the greatest commandment? But Jesus seems to have put a special emphasis on the latter, uh, love your neighbor as yourself. In the Sermon on the Mount, um, which kind of ends with this summary statement, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. This is the law and the prophet. So it's a singular emphasis on love your neighbor as yourself. The very next verse after that is um, um, beware of the broad path that leads to destruction and go the narrow path that leads to life. And so love your neighbor as yourself is the most um, 
is the closest to the narrow path in that in that rendering so there's another way of emphasizing love your neighbor as yourself this is the law and the prophets in other words this is the bible um, the apostles um, in the apostolic writing echo this part of the jesus tradition the whole law is summed up in a single command love your neighbor as yourself that's paul or james um, says calls love your neighbor as yourself the royal law the law of liberty it's a way of elevating it so this emphasis on love your neighbor as yourself was probably a function of the fact that the Jesus, uh, Jesus and his early followers were acutely aware by personal experience of um, how harmful interpretation of Scripture could be used against people, and used against them in particular. Uh, so in, in the Jesus tradition, love your neighbor as yourself really becomes like the preeminent test of whether our reading of scripture is accurate, helpful, good, or not. Um, if your interpretation hurts other people, well, it's wrong. This is deeply embedded in the early, in the gospels and in the early apostolic writings. Today, what I want to do is take a deeper dive into the original context of love your neighbor as yourself, where, which is the book of Leviticus, which is part of the Torah, the law of Moses, the uh, part of the first five books of the Hebrew Bible. Leviticus chapter 19, you've got them, uh, you've got that on your list there. Let's take a look. Let's take a look. I'm using the um, Jewish Publication Society uh, translation of this. Now, let's just give it a little context. The beginning of Leviticus 19, let's say the first eight verses includes material that is the reason your eyes glaze over when you're reading the Bible. So it's, it's all about sac different forms of sacrifice and, and uh, the ritual aspects of the law. And, and um, you know, you start reading that stuff and you're like, well, what does this have to do with anything? Actually, it has to do with a lot of things. It's part of the, the uh, scripture's way of beginning to unveil the scapegoat mechanism, this tendency we have to single out vulnerable people, exclude them, and that brings peace to the group. Sacrifice is a kind of a ritualization of uh, scapegoating as part of God's process of like weaning us off of this tendency we have, but that's just a, that's another topic. So the first, first eight verses, your eyes are going to glaze over. That's why I started with um, verse 9. I want to give this some context. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap all the way to the edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. You shall not pick your vineyard bare or gather the fallen fruit of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the stranger. I, the Lord, am your God. So this is like the early food stamp program. You know, it's like, and, and interesting, the early food stamp program wasn't just for the citizens. There wasn't like means testing. It was like for anyone who needed it. Any, the stranger in the land, the foreigner, was eligible for the food stamp program of Israel. Verse 11 through, uh, that has no particular political commentary now. Uh, <laughs> um, verse 11 through 13, you shall not steal. You shall not deal deceitfully or falsely with one another. You shall not swear falsely by my name, profaning the name of your God. I'm the Lord. 
You shall not defraud your fellow. You shall not commit robbery. The wages of a laborer shall not remain with you until morning. Now that's interesting. You know, I've, I've known a lot of people who own like mom-pop shops that do business with big entities like the University of Michigan or like General Motors. And one of their complaints is the big companies don't pay you often for months. Like you have to sometimes borrow money to do the work. You put all this work and labor into it and you get paid like six, seven, eight months later, sometimes even longer. Um, Torah is calling that robbery, interestingly. So it's pretty relevant stuff. Verse 14. Let's take a look at verse uh, 14. You shall not insult the deaf or place a stumbling block before the blind, you shall fear, fear your God, I am the Lord. So in other words, um, you know, when you insult the deaf, they can't hear you insulting them. When we do hostile actions to other people behind their back, so they don't even know what's happening, like that's just, that's like a, that's a no-no. And like if you don't have enough um, love in your heart to revere the person, not to do that, revere God. Uh, uh, instead and and don't do that stuff um here's one this is rules for judicial proceedings hmm you shall not render an unfair decision do not favor the poor or show deference to the rich interesting judge your kinsmen fairly do not deal basely with your countrymen do not profit by the blood of your fellow i am the lord now um the rabbis uh, tend to interpret this as um, like don't spread false rumors about people to get them charged with crimes you know so this kind of a antique language here but that's like the most common understanding of that um, part of the, the rules for judicial proceedings and then um, verse uh, 17 I'm going to use a different translation the new living translation because it comports with like the consensus rabbinic interpretation of this uh, your version is a little bit harder to figure out but this is do not nurse hatred in your heart for any of your kinsmen your relatives confront people directly so you will not be held guilty for their sin so now now it's moving more towards like um, the attitude, the perspectives of our heart, how we regard other people. It's not just, you know, deeds of justice, but really getting more internal. Not, don't nurse hatred in your heart, but confront people directly. You've probably all been on the other side of this equation. When you have an interaction with someone and they kind of just blow up in your face and you're like, oh my gosh, where did all this anger come from? And as you unpack it with them, you realize, oh, you've been doing something probably for months, possibly years, that has been annoying them, and they've just been swallowing it, and so the, the anger has just been building up, and finally it reaches a fever pitch, and it just comes all pouring out, and it seems out of all proportion, and it's like, no, don't, don't let that happen. Like, talk to people about the things that are bothering, you know, they're bothering you, and, and don't nurse hatred in your heart. And then finally, this is the this is the mother load, verse 18. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against your kinsmen, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. 
This kind of summarizes this whole section, which again is a way of emphasizing it. So let's notice a few of these, a uh, few things from this context. I think there's some really um, gold in the mirror hills here for us as we think about self-kindness, love of self. First, um, love your neighbor as yourself sums up a set of commands about relating to others that could be described as justice love. This is, this is really justice love. So justice, love of neighbor, love of self, reverence for God, these are like all connected in Leviticus. So the, the, the view here is that every relationship that we're in is like a triangle. So that there's me, there's you, we're in a relationship, but there's a third party in our relationship who is God. And, and, and this is a God who has a considerable concern for justice. So none of us is in, in this view of things, none of us is just in a, like a straight on relationship with another person, but it's always us, the other person. But then there's, there's a third party who has a vested interest and concern in the relationship, a kind of a co-ownership of everyone involved in the, in the thing. And that someone is God and, and that someone has a, a really significant concern uh, for justice. So I think this um, demonstrates like the, the main difference in the uh, self-love, self-compassion, self-kindness that comes out of the self-esteem movement and this older tradition. So the self-esteem movement um, came out of a period in psychology when like the 60s and 70s when uh, um, psychology was really individualistic. The focus was really on like understanding what's going on inside of a person and parsing that out and having a deeper understanding of pathology and whatnot and how do we help people deal with their inner workings and, and had a less of a concern for people in their social context. This has changed quite a bit. I mean, psychology has really matured beyond this, but that was more characteristic of, of uh, psychology when the self-esteem movement was coming to the fore. And, and it was also, you would say, more secular. Um, I, I have a Jewish therapist, and he says, you know, the, the founder of modern psychology is Freud, and my therapist says, who is trained in Freudian psychology, psychoanalysis, he said, man, Freud was really, he, he, man, he had a hostile relationship to religion. And, and you could see this in the 60s and 70s in, in social work schools and clinical psychology. There was just kind of like a, a real like nervousness about faith and religion. And then a lot of studies started coming out saying actually for most people, faith is like a really positive aspect of, of their lives and, and really helps their mental health. Unless it's great if you're straight in this period, you know, you know, for, for a gay person or for a gender variant person, actually it's a, it's a negative thing to be part of a non-affirming religious tradition because you internalize the hostilities. It's, it's horrible, but for, for, you know, it's great if you're straight. Um, and so uh, psychologists are understanding that, oh, this is a really positive thing. So my therapist is like, great, I can talk to my therapist about all my like Jesus experiences and scripture and like he's not familiar with all this stuff but he's interested and he's positive and it's it, it's awesome i'm in a great uh, transference phase with my therapist um yes. so um, <laughs> um so this older tradition of self-kindness in leviticus um 
has this different context. How can we be faithful to God and faithful to our neighbor, including ourselves? So it's a broader, we'd say a more holistic understanding of self-love or self-kindness. Now, um, Stuart Smalley character in Saturday Night Live, um, you kids can look it up online, you've probably never seen it before, but um, you know, he's, he's sitting in front of a mirror for, the, for this classic phase, uh, and he's looking in the mirror and he's saying, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and gosh darn it, I, I love the gosh, I love the gosh, you know the gosh is just beautiful, and gosh darn it, people like me. Now Leviticus, if we were to take the same frame of the mirror, Leviticus would have us look in the mirror and see not just ourselves, but God standing behind us, maybe with a hand on our shoulder of support, a God who has a concern for, for justice, and, and like a look of pure love on God's face. You know, the, in the Hebrew Bible, the, the term for like God's emanating presence that would come out of his person, and especially his face, would be the, the glory of God, would just shine forth from God. And the New Testament absolutely picks this up, but also interprets that the, the glory of God, like the essence of God, is love. First John, God is love, and God's essence is love. And so the, the glorious, like shining forth of God is love. So if we were to picture ourselves looking in the mirror and then noticing, imagining with the eyes of our hearts, a figure who represented God shining out from God's face with glory, which is love for everything and everyone, including us. That would be more the Leviticus sort of mirror image of self-kindness. Older tradition, similar aim as the self-esteem movement, um, but a different path. The second thing you, you might notice is that love your neighbor as yourself this may seem really simple, <laughs> implies that we're in a relationship with ourselves, right? Especially when you put it in that context, love your neighbor as yourself. It's very clear that the, the writer understands we, we are actually have a relationship with ourselves. And by inference, we're kind of obliged to to nurture it and tend it and take care of it with the same kind of concerns for justice that, that we would anyone else. I mean, we shouldn't take this for granted. Not every species can be said to have um, self-awareness, which is kind of necessary to have a relationship with yourself. You have to be able to, as yourself, be aware of yourself. And so the gold standard for figuring out whether a species has um, Self-awareness is the, the mirror test, right? So you put lots of different animals in front of a mirror and they'll try to play with the figure in the mirror, you know, or they'll, they'll get hostile towards the figure in the mirror. But there are a certain set of species, I think the orca whale, uh, the dolphin, the magpie, a bird has this. Some ants seem to have this. Um, and certain, and the great apes have it. And we have it too which is we see our image in the mirror, we understand that's us. Oh, that's me. And if you saw something on, you know, on your clothing, you would, you'd look in the mirror and say, oh, I have a piece of lint, and you would take it off. We have self-awareness. 
So it's fair to say we're the kind of creatures who are aware of ourselves, that we have a self that is constantly observing the self. And therefore, we have a relationship with ourselves. Each of us has a relationship with ourselves. This is really important in Trinitarian understanding of God, right? I mean, God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit, irreducible in the nature of God. And this vision of God is that you can't, God is relational in God's self. God is God, and God is in relationship with God. It's a, it's a fascinating um, uh, thought, so this is really important in our tradition. So to say love your neighbor as yourself is to recognize we each have a relationship with ourselves. You might just want to think about that for a minute, you know, like, I wonder how my relationship with myself is doing. Um, and in this context of Leviticus, we have an obligation to tend that relationship, um, to treat ourselves well. You know, not, not just anything goes when you're relating with yourself. Um, you, you've probably had this experience. I've certainly had the experience. Many people have the experience. Have you ever no noticed yourself berating yourself inside your head? Or sometimes even out loud? Like you do something, you know, oh, that was so stupid. What, what is wrong with me? That's so stupid. There's a, there's a Saturday Night Live on that. There's a John Candy was the guy who did that. Oh my gosh, it's hilarious. This was in the 90s when all the funny stuff was happening. Um, <laughs> um, have you ever found yourself doing that? And then you have like this moment of clarity. It's like the, the heavens part. And you have a, a moment of sanity and you think, I would never treat anyone else like that. I would never speak to anyone else like that. And yet inside my head, or sometimes even out loud when we're by ourselves, we're berating ourselves. Oh my, that's exactly, that thought is, is like a divine, um, a divine moment to be listened to. We have a relationship with ourselves and we have an obligation to nurture that relationship and to um, treat ourselves well. And the third thing we see, I think, in this Leviticus context is that loving ourselves is part of loving our community. Um, it's like it's part of caring for our community. It's part of looking out for the people in our community. You could even say that, in a sense, love of self is a very special obligation in the same way that a parent loving, say, an infant child is a special obligation. I mean, a parent loving an infant child, I mean, that infant child is in close proximity to the parent, is vulnerable, has needs that only the parent can meet. So that's a special obligation because of the proximity. Um, you know, let's, let's think about this. Um, Let's take Emily as an example. Um, lots of people love Emily. Rachel sitting next to Emily. Oh my Lord, they're in love. Rachel loves Emily. I love Emily. It, we work with a group of coworkers. Everybody loves it. Cassie loves Emily. Caroline loves Emily. Susan loves Emily. Diane loves Emily. Diane's older. She's got this older love for Emily. Everybody loves Emily. A bunch of you love Emily. Aren't you glad I didn't do this to you? I'm doing it to Emily because 
We pay her. We pay her. So she's got to put up with certain things. But, you know, each of the people who in Emily's life who love Emily, they're, they're each in like a different position to love Emily. And they have lots of helpers. You know what I mean? Like they're not the only one to love Emily. But there's only one person in the entire world who can love Emily, who is in the closest proximity to Emily, and that's Emily. Like, we can only practice the obligation of self-love with ourselves. And like, nobody else can like, do that for us. It's like certain things we can do for one another. It's great. But like sleep is one of the things you can't do for other people. You know, like you have a friend who's having an insomnia and you say, don't worry about it. I'll go take a nap for you. <laughs> it doesn't work like that. Self-love is one of those things. The only person who can love you with self-love is, is you. So that's like a special obligation form of love. And in a real sense, our community is counting on us to do our job of loving ourselves because no one has like the insider information. Like an ideal community, we want everyone to be loved in our group and in our community, right? If that's your goal, I want everyone to be loved in my nation, in, in, in my family, in my church. I want everyone to be loved. If that's like your goal, then you're really counting on everybody loving themselves because they've got the insider information about the, themselves. I know um, sometimes it, we have to like notice this. A um, little personal experience on this. Um, I was widowed at age 60, as many of you know, after 42 years of marriage, which means I got married at 18. And I was the father of two by age 20. And when I was 20, um, I worked for the Community Mental Health Center, and I was part of the suicide prevention hotline. So I'm a father, I have two kids, I'm on the suicide prevention hotline. I was part of like an intense Christian community, and I had a household, This uh, I think it was in 1975, so I was 23 by this time, and I had like pastoral responsibility for my, my family, and eight single people, eight single adults who were like in college or just out of college, that's crazy. Yes. That's just crazy. That's, that's, that, that should all be illegal. <laughs> um, and so I had like decades and decades of really being responsible to love and care for other people. And on um, seven months after Nancy died, she died in October, I met uh, Julia, an Episcopal priest for coffee. Um, I just, I needed to talk to somebody, and she had lost her husband. I thought, this will be safe, you know, and I, I Oh my gosh, I really liked her. I mean, like one coffee, I really liked her. I wasn't planning on dating or anything. It was too soon. And, 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 but, uh, boom, I fell in love with Julia. You know, I'm thinking, is it okay to fall in love seven months after you've lost your... I loved my wife for, for you know, 42 years. And you realize when you're in that position, actually, it, that's quite possible. Like, you never stop missing your departed spouse, 
And, and that's just like on a parallel track with whatever love you have for other people in Europe. The two things go together. And it's just like, and later I found out that 50% of men who were in like a positive relationship with their spouse are married within the first year. I, I waited till after the first year to get married, so I'm like, that is very reasonable on my part. But, but yeah, I was in circumstances in that part of my life when I was under a lot of scrutiny. Like we're leading the process of change and LGBT and an evangelical thing. And here I am dating an Episcopal priest. I'm, going, I'm, I'm down the slippery slope, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. This was not strategic. Yeah. I, had a, I had a colleague who said, Ken, you're dating an Episcopal priest, for heaven's sake. Like, you're, that, that was like bad. That's like you're slipping down the, the slippery slope. I had, kid, I had a, I had a 19-year-old um, daughter who, you know, was grieving her mom and was a, was a Division I athlete and didn't have, like, the time and the space to do the grieving that I was doing in those seven months. And when, when you know, when I mentioned, hey, hey, honey, I'm, I met somebody, that was really understandably challenging and difficult. She handled it so well. She's like, Dad, this is good for you. I'm going to need some time to, <laughs> to adjust to this. And I was in this phase where I was like, Man, in terms of my responsibilities and all the people I'm caring for, the best thing for me would be to just put this on the shelf. And then it was like the heavens opened and I had this understanding. Nobody can love you, Ken, as yourself, except yourself. And you need this. And this is for you. And even though it actually is going to make life a little bit harder for people that you care about and complicate things, they'll get over it, <laughs> you know. And actually, what better lesson could you give to your children than showing your children how to do that sacred responsibility of loving yourself? I am so, th I can remember when that moment hit, I was in my living room, I was sitting down, I was doing a little meditation, Christine, I was listening to some uh, my go-to meditation music, and it was like, I can feel it right now, is thank you, God. Fourth, love of self is um, assumed in Leviticus. Do you notice that? Like, there's all this stuff about our obligation to love other people, and then it's love your neighbor as yourself, and then there's not like a how to do that. Like, there's, there's, it's not embellished. I wonder if the earlier counsel about how we're to love one another isn't part of like how we actually are called to love ourselves. But there's no embellishment on love ourselves. We just have the specifics on loving our neighbor. Um, but I think it's good news that it's assumed in Leviticus. It's, a, it's just assumed that we will love ourselves. The good news is I think it's just our default setting to love ourselves. Like if something doesn't get in the way of it, we will, we will love ourselves. We will love ourselves naturally unless something interferes with our doing so. You know, in a, in a very basic sense, we all love ourselves. When we're hungry, we eat. You know, when we're thirsty, we drink. Um, if we put our hands too close to the burner on the stove, we, 
move it away. Um, if we get a paper cut, we instinctively go, ouch, and we stop the bleeding. You think about babies, how they naturally, you know, love themselves, make their needs known. You know, if a baby is hungry, the baby doesn't think, oh, I'm baby number three in this family. Mom is really worn out. Oh, she needs her rest. I won't bother her at 3 a.m. in the morning. No, the baby is like, my body, myself, I'm hungry. Feed me. <laughs> and it's a service to the family because the baby gets fed that way. It's hard to figure out when a baby's hungry, except for they're telling us. <laughs> I think what this means, especially if we have difficulty loving ourselves, which many of us do, this means we don't have to make ourselves love ourselves. We don't have to make ourselves love ourselves so much as let ourselves love ourselves. To, to you know, like see what's getting in the way of us loving ourselves and then maybe get some help with removing those obstacles and then just letting ourselves love ourselves. Like if we can deal with those obstacles, it will, it will happen. We will love ourselves. Just like, like when you get a cold. You know, we, we don't go into cure-yourself mode when you get a cold. I mean, echinacea, okay, you know, whatever. But <laughs> we, we, we just do the things that support our body's natural ability to get over a cold. You know, get better sleep if possible, drink lots of fluids, and take some vitamin C to, to stimulate your natural immune system because we know that like our body's working for us to get over the cold. So it's not so much a matter of making ourselves get better, it's letting ourselves get better and cooperating with that natural process. That's a much less burdensome uh, so we're going to end with some uh, a homework assignment, and then a meditation. Uh, the homework last time's met, uh, homework assignment was take 20 seconds to absorb the next time you get a compliment. Did anyone try that? Like take, a, okay, good, good. I did. Lisa Ruby gave me a compliment on the sermon at the board meeting. She said, my, my wife Lisa, I was telling my wife Lisa about the sermon, and she, I was just telling her, you know, it was really good. It was, there was a lot of, like, good Bible stuff, and Lisa loves Bible stuff, and it was, like, dense Bible stuff, but then it was very practical, and I was like, I'm listening to it, and I'm like, yeah, oh, thank you. <laughs> and then I remembered it, and now I'm able to tell you the compliment I put in my 20 seconds. If any of you in doing this practice have gotten a compliment, tell me about it. Send me an email, tell me what the compliment is, and that'll be part of like receiving it as your spiritual practice. Feel free to do it. I love hearing people talk about the compliments they received. I just think it's a very healthy thing. So anyway, um, what's our homework assignment for this week? It would be, think of something that you like to do for other people and tend to do just kind of instinctively as a go-to thing. And then do it for yourself. Like, um, I love to give people flowers and buy flowers for people. And I realized a few months ago, I never buy flowers myself. So like every week for the past two months, I've been going to Trader Joe's where they're cheap. And I buy flowers for myself and I have a nice flower arrangement in my office and I sit there and I look at it and I try to get the same pleasure out of buying flowers for myself that I get out of buying flowers 
for other people, and it feels real good. Um, so think of something that you'd like to do for others that gives you pleasure, and then try doing it for yourself, and um, pay attention to the same feeling of pleasure that you get doing for others as you do it for yourself. Clear as the assignment? Okay, great. Um, now's our time for meditation. I think we will use the... Um, the uh, Psalm 23, Bobby McFerrin, for our meditation. Taking a few minutes here for meditation. Um, the first thing I'd like you to do is just take 30 seconds and try to think of someone in your life who has a nurturing presence. If that's, if that's someone who identifies as feminine or female, so much the better. But try to, try to just take 30 seconds to picture someone who has a real kindly, natural nurturing kind of relationship with you that could even be a pet would be fine who is just for you 30 seconds think about that person not yet not yet not yet 30 seconds pay attention to that person what it feels like to be loved by that nurturing person Okay, now we're going to, in just a moment, when I give the cue, we're going to listen to a really cool version of Psalm 23 written by Bobby McFerrin. And he had a very strong relationship with his mother. So he decided to put Psalm 23 into like the, the feminine God as mother experience. So let's just listen to that and then Emily will lead the rest of our time. Anoints my head with oil. 